Hey Parkview, I'm really excited to have my friend Caleb Kaltenbach preaching for you today. I'm back on next week, taking you all the way through the six weeks of the Life on Mission journey. And before I did that, I wanted you to hear a testimony from somebody who's uh, been on the other side. Um, Caleb Kaltenbach grew up in a, in a family that, it, it, when you hear the story today, he hated Christians and for very good reason. And um, and then God found him, and he found Jesus, and now he's a pastor out in California, one of my good friends. But I wanted you to hear his story. I won't spoil it for you. I want you to hear his story about what God has done in his life and taken him from a person who was way over here to a person who was over here leading a church that is all about reaching people that are all over there, just like us. Would you welcome my friend Caleb Kaltenbach? Hey, I'm glad to be here with you today. Uh, don't you love Tim Harlow? I love Tim Harlow. I think Tim Harlow's a great guy. Um, love his wife, too. My name is Caleb, and I get to serve as the lead pastor at Discovery Church in Simi Valley, which is a suburb of Los Angeles. And uh, we love the ocean. We love Disneyland out there. We also love people that don't know Jesus. And so uh, I really feel like our church, we're kind of kindred spirits in a sense, because at our church, we want to be a church that unchurched people love to attend. So if you know, you're new and you're not used to going to church, you would love our church. If you've been to church before, you'd still love our church. But if, you're, if, this, if, if it's your first time here today or second time, you could not come to a better church in Parkview. So I pray that you keep on coming here. I know a lot about you because Pastor Tim has told me about you, but I'm going to tell you a little bit about myself. I'm a movie fan. How many of you are movie fans out there? And I'm not talking about Redbox. I mean going to a movie theater and sitting in the dark right next to somebody that you have no idea who they are. You don't know, you know their background or anything like that. So my wife and I, uh, we ended up you know, getting married, and we both were movie fans. And we went through a phase where, you know, we just didn't get to see a lot of movies in the theater, and we watched DVDs, uh, mostly because we were depressed. For some reason, and I don't know why, we decided we wanted to get pregnant right when, you know, we got married. Obviously, we were out of our minds. And so we tried, and we tried, and we tried, and we just couldn't get pregnant. And so then, we go ahead, and we go to, a, you know, try again. And we can't get pregnant. And we get depressed and my wife and I, we handled our depression in different ways. I threw myself into my work. My wife was much more destructive and started watching Hugh Grant movies over and over and over and over again. That's not funny. That's a serious epidemic, you know, on the female gender, Hugh Grant movies. And so I just decided that I'm tired of Hugh Grant. I'm going to get you pregnant one way or another. So we went, we went to a fertility clinic. And we got pregnant with my son on our first try. We got pregnant with my daughter on our second try. Now, I love them equally, but I'm going to tell you about my son because his birth was, you know, very, very unique. When we first found out we were pregnant, we were so excited. I called in sick to work. I was so excited, and I did things that I had never done before. I went and trolled Babies R Us for like three hours, just sitting in all the different chairs. And we were the annoying couple. The Colton box, you don't want to have them over because they're just going to talk all dinner time about their pregnancy. And we did, and we lost friends, and we didn't care whatsoever because we were pregnant. And I knew what to expect, right? Because I had seen the movies. I knew that when the baby came out, there'd be a light from heaven shining. There'd be underscoring music. The baby would come out pristine clean, would say my name and grab my finger. That is not what happened. The day that we, uh, the day that it was time to go to the hospital, you know, everything was great, and my wife was happy until the pain hit, and she became somebody that I had not exchanged vows with at this point. <laughs> 
And I went over to, to comfort her. I put my hand on her shoulder, and she said, don't you touch me right now, especially you. And I, I'm like, okay, Linda Blair, Emily Rose, whatever your name is, you know, I'm waiting for her head to spin around. And the doctor came in and gave her drugs, which is what she wanted, and she went back to loving God and others at that time. And we were fine until it was time to give birth, and the doctor came back in again and turned off the medicine. And the doctor spreads out this plastic mat all over the floor and uh, puts on what looks like body armor and and a welding mask. And all the nurses are doing the same thing. And I I go up to the doctor. I said, is something getting ready to explode? (laughs) Because I'm not covered. Well, she go over there, Dad. So I'm, I'm sitting there and I'm waiting. And the doctor gets in the football position, you know, waiting for the baby to come out. Literally, when my son came out, I went from this to... I was like, what, what, what is that? What is that? And he came out, and he looked like Dan Aykroyd in Saturday Night Live. And, you know, it was like watching a Sigourney Weaver movie. And Crayola doesn't even have a crayon for the color that he was when he came out. And he's screaming, and his neck wouldn't work. And, I mean, I saw things that day that I didn't even know existed. And they wrapped him in a blanket, and they gave him to me, and I held him. And they said, what do you think? And I said, he looks like a turtle. <laughs> And when my daughter was born, she looked like this big, red, plump, juicy ladybug. And the doctor said, well, if I had to label this pregnancy, it would be a mess. This delivery was a mess. That's the label I'd give it. And I was thinking in that very moment, you know, I was just looking. And and if you had seen this, you would have thought it was messy too. I mean, there's a reason why Hollywood doesn't really show what happens in pregnancies. Because nobody would pay to see a movie like that. And so... You know, you're, you're, I'm holding my son, and I'm looking through that messiness. And just in this one instant, I just love this kid. I don't even know where that love came from. Just in one moment, and some of you understand who are parents, you just feel this overwhelming love for your child, and you're just like, where did that come from? You know what that's like? That's like your relationship with God. You see, here's what the world, culture, society, other people, and even other Christians want to do. They want to label you. They want to label you and they want to define you by different kind of messiness or or things that they see as messy that's going on in your life. They want to label you. They want to say, okay, you don't have a job. You can't get a job. You have too nice of a job. You don't have any money. You're bankrupt. You have too much money. They define you by your sexuality. They define you by your addiction. They define you by your drinking or your drugs. They define you by depression. They define you by your sickness. And so we all wear these labels on us. And and you know the labels lie, right? And, And so here's what God does. God looks past the labels. He looks past the mess in our lives that other people identify as mess. And here's what he says. He says, that's my child. And I love my child. And I would do anything for you. And by the way, God did do anything for you. And he sent his son to die on the cross for you. And so I'm here today to just give you a very, very simple message. If you've been coming to church for any time, for any length of time, and and you're used to coming to church, this is not going to be a new theological statement or concept for you. It's something that you've heard before. You're not going to walk away saying, whoa, dude, I never thought about that. But if you don't go to church, this may be the first time that you hear this, and I want you to hear and, and listen to this very carefully, because this statement, when I finally owned it and I learned it, it changed my life, and it changed my whole perception about God. And here it is. God loves messy people. God loves people with labels. God loves people that are different from others. God loves people that are pushed to the edge of society. Let me say it another way. God is for you. 
God is in your corner today, no matter what you're going through, and he is cheering you on. He's pushing you forward. God loves messy people. And so there's this great passage in the Bible that I want you to turn to. It's in John chapter 8 that really proves this point. Uh, if you have your Bibles or your mobile devices, go ahead and turn there. We're also going to have the words on the screen up here. I mean, this is just a, a fantastic story of what I believe uh, just really illustrates uh, the power and the love that God has for people that are different from aka everybody else. Uh, that would be you and me, by the way. So we're going to look at John, which is the fourth gospel. It was written by one of Jesus' disciples, the last living disciple at the time. His name was John. I guess he named the book after himself. Um, but anyway, it's named John. And it, it kind of tracks uh, it, it, Jesus' whole life in a different way than the other Gospels do. It's a lot more devotional. And in John, we're introduced to Jesus in the early portions of his ministry in this passage where he's rising as a celebrity and people are beginning to really know him and, and learn what he's all about. So take a look at this, John 8, beginning with verse 1. Jesus went to the Mount of Olives. At dawn, he appeared again in the temple courts where all the people gathered around him and he sat down to teach them. The teachers of the law and the Pharisees brought in a woman caught in adultery. They made her stand before the group and said to Jesus, Teacher, this woman was caught in the act of adultery. In the law, Moses commanded us to stone such women. Now what do you say? And you get an insight into their hearts here and, and what they're feeling in their hearts and what they're thinking because John explains it. He says they were using this question as a trap in order to have a basis for accusing him. Now, there are so many things about this that bother me, right? But let's set the stage real quick. If this were Western, Jesus would be wearing the white hat, and the Pharisees and the teachers of the law would be wearing the black hats. They're the bad guys. And the reason why they don't like Jesus is because Jesus is preaching grace mixed in with truth. He, he's teaching freedom. He's teaching how you can really be close to God because of God's gracious love. The Pharisees and the teachers of the law did not teach that. They taught rules and they taught regulations. You know, the Pharisees were like the popular pastors of the day, like the Rick Warrens, Chuck Swindoll, Tony Evans. The teachers of the law, I mean, they were like the, you know, the Bible college professors, the seminary professors, you know, they had the Old Testament memorized. They had, you know, commentaries on the Old Testament memorized. They had their own teachings memorized, and they didn't have a life, so obviously they were still 40 living in their mother's basement playing Stratego all day. And so, I mean, these were these people, and in the B-rated, you know, Jesus movies, you see Jesus, like, with 20 of these guys around him. But in Jesus' day, there were like 6,000, 6,000 of these guys that were, that were walking around Jesus and challenging him. So, I mean, it was a big number. And so they take this woman, they find her in the act of adultery, and they throw her at the feet of Jesus. Now, it does say in Deuteronomy 22 that if you find a man and a woman caught in the act of adultery, take them outside the city gates and stone them. Did you hear what I said? If you find a man or a woman, and I read this, I'm like, where's the dude? I mean, have you ever read this before? And you're like, where's the guy? Did he get a get-out-of-jail-free card? And I just think about this. I mean, seriously, this just makes me so mad because they are using this woman. They don't care if she lives or dies. They are willing to sacrifice her life to be proven right so that Jesus is proven wrong. They are using her just as much as the man who committed adultery with her was using her. I mean, they're supposed to be the religious leaders. They're supposed to be the pastors. The ones that are supposed to shepherd her back into the fold who are supposed to help her through a rough time. And they're not willing to do that. Now, <clears throat> if I was Jesus, I'd be mad about this. And Jesus was, right? And, and, but the difference between me and Jesus is that he's smooth and I'm not. 
because I would stick my foot in my mouth, and some of you understand that. You know, you get mad, you start saying things and words and letters fly all over the place, and everybody's a casualty in that moment. Here's what Jesus does, and it's a little strange, and maybe it's blasphemous to call it strange, but it is. Look at this. Jesus bent down and started to write on the ground with his finger. Okay, yeah, so I do that a lot in my arguments. I mean, think about it. When's the last time you've been in an argument with your spouse or somebody and you're like, hold on. <laughs> I mean, you think about this and you're like, wow, Jesus, that doesn't make sense. And Jesus did some gnarly things. Remember when he spit on the ground and made mud and wiped down the blind guy's eye and, you know, be like, wow, Jesus, couldn't you just snapped your fingers or something like that? It's a little nasty. But everything that Jesus does always has a point. And so some people try to think, okay, maybe when he was writing in the dust on the ground, maybe he was writing, you know, the, the sins of the crowd. Others think that maybe he was writing verses on the law. But I found this interesting verse back in the book of Jeremiah, uh, chapter 17. Jeremiah was a prophet in the Old Testament that said a lot of things that God wanted him to say. And I think this might be our clue. Jeremiah 17, 13, listen to this. It says this, Lord, you are the hope of Israel. All who forsake you will be put to shame. Those who turn away from you will be written in the dust because they have forsaken the Lord, the spring of living water. You see, I think that these Pharisees and teachers of the law thought that this woman was outside of the, the grace of God. And here's what Jesus was doing. I think he was writing down the names of the Pharisees in the dust. And I think he was saying, hey, you think this woman is out of bounds? You're out of bounds because you live by rules and legalism and regulations. And so verse 7 says, when they kept on questioning them, he straightened up and said to them, let any one of you who is without sin be the first to throw a stone at her. And again, he stooped down and wrote on the ground. Now, again, I told you, Jesus is smooth. He's witty. I mean, I'm not. I get in an argument with somebody or a debate or a discussion, and I don't believe the same thing, and I can't think of something to say in that moment. And so like two hours later, I'll think of something and I'll text it to him. It's like, yeah, take that. Doesn't have the same effect, does it? Some of you are right there with me. You're like, yeah, that's me. I can't think. And then two hours later, you're like, well, yeah, look at this. Send. I'm the man now. But when Jesus says, let any one of you without sin cast the first stone, he knows that nobody's going to throw a stone for two reasons. Number one, um, because of the Ten Commandments. You remember the old movie with Charlton Heston, Right? you know, with Moses. And then, you know, Christian Bale, Batman is playing Moses later on in December. And so basically Moses went up, got 10 commandments. And one of the 10 commandments said this, thou shalt not bear false witness. In other words, don't lie. So if they picked up a rock and threw it, they knew that they had sinned, they'd be lying. So they didn't want to sin on purpose. But here's the other thing. If they picked up a rock, they'd be guilty of blasphemy. Here's the reason why. They believe, like you and I believe, that God cannot sin, that God is the only one without sin. So if they picked up a rock to throw it, guess what? They would be guilty of sin in that very moment. And that's not what they wanted to have happen. And here's the result. You've got to love this, verse 9. It says that this, those who heard began to go away one at a time, the older ones first, until only Jesus was left with the woman still standing there. Now she's had quite a day, right? Caught in the act of adultery dragged through town. Everybody knows her. There's Bertha. We all know what she's doing, you know. Dragged through town. She thinks that she's going to be killed. And, and, she, and, and by the way, she thinks she's going to be stoned. And we're not talking about Colorado stoned, like 21st century stoned. We're talking about, you know, first century throwing rocks at you, dying a very gruesome death stoned. 
and she's embarrassed in front of Jesus, in front of this celebrity pastor. And then here's what Jesus says. You know, Jesus is def- comes to her aid and defends her, even though she's been caught in the act of sin. I mean, and, and I don't know about you, but my Jesus is funny. I think he said funny things in the, in the Gospels, and I think he had a sense of humor. You know why I think he has a sense of humor? Because God has a sense of humor. I could see Jesus here kind of hamming this up in verse 10, where he asked her, he said, woman, where are they? Has no one condemned you? I could see him saying, hey, where'd everybody go? I thought all these people wanted to kill you. They're not here anymore? Where are these people that were against you? She looks around and Verse 11, she says, no one, sir. And then verse 11, the end of it, this is the most profound statement in the passage. This is the statement that really makes the entire passage and sums it up. Here's what Jesus says. Then neither do I condemn you. Go now and leave your life of sin. Isn't that powerful? I mean, in that one statement, Jesus captures the essence of grace and truth. John 1, verses 14 and 17 say that Jesus came full of grace and truth. And so here's what we do too many of the times. We're either on the side of grace. We're like, okay, I love everybody and it doesn't matter what you've done and let's all hold hands and eat cookie dough and sugar plums and you're like Buddy the Elf, okay? And, and that's some of you. You're like Buddy the Elf. And then others of us in here, we're the, we're the angry Christians, right? We're the, hey, God's word says this and you know this and King James only and this verse and this verse and you got to repent. You got to add a few more syllables to repent when you talk like that. Repentant. <laughs> but the power of this statement that Jesus makes is not in taking one side or another. It's the combination of the two, right? He says, grace, then neither do I condemn you. Truth, go leave your life of sin. And we can't go on just one side or the other. We have got to learn to live within the tension of the two. And there are some times where we have to lean in on the truth side of things. There are other times when we have to lean in on the grace side of things. This is huge for us to understand because all of us have people in our lives where we have to interact with like that who are messy or who are labeled. I mean, and and let's be honest, some of us are too, right? If we're going to be honest, we have junk. Everybody in here has junk. We all do. I mean, for those of you who believe in Jesus and are walking with him, you had to repent of your stuff, right? Before you got saved. You had to repent of it. You had to say, God, I'm sorry. So you understand that. But we forget some of the times where we came from. Let me ask you this. Who are the people that are labeled in your life? Now, let's be honest. I mean, you know who they are. Who are the people that just drive you crazy? Uh, some of you are looking at the person next to you. Don't do that. It's not going to be a fun car ride home, okay? But who are the people in your life that you just think about when you think of labeled and you just have to go, that's the person I'm talking about. You know that person because on Monday you're going to walk, run into him when you go to the cubicle world where you work at. You're going to be walking down the hallway. That one person comes. You're like, good night. And you just turn around because you don't want to talk to that person. Or some of you, you support Starbucks employees on a daily basis, right? You have that one Starbucks you go to or coffee house and it's like the new cheers. Everybody there knows your name. And you see this one person that you know you need to share the gospel with. Maybe you feel like if you're a Christian that God is telling you to go talk to this person. And, and you're like, no, I can't, God. You know, why not? Because they're weird. And God says, yeah, but so are you. And I love you anyway. Or maybe you're unlike me and you actually go to the gym. And when you go to the gym, 
Maybe you, you put in your little earphones right here, which is the zoning out earphones. Maybe you feel like God is leaning into you to talk to a person in a non-creepy way, right? Because it's easy to be a creep in the gym, so don't be a creeper when you go to the gym. But maybe you feel like, hey, I, I need to go talk to this person. God has put something on my heart to share with this person. I mean, who's the person that is labeled in your life? Who's the person that culture, society, and other people, <coughs> and even other Christians would define as messy? Let me tell you about the two people in my life. It's my mom and my dad. You see, when I was two years old, my parents were divorced, and both of them entered the LGBT community at the same time. And so I was raised my whole life in the LGBT community. I grew up with my parents. My mom had a partner that she was with named Vera for a long time. My dad was more in the closet and had a lot of friends. But I grew up in this community my whole life, going to bars and clubs, going to parties, Um, My mom had me march with her and Vera in parades, Uh, went to events. They were on the board of directors for GLAAD, for Kansas City area. I mean, this was just my lifestyle. And I thought that, you know, all kids kind of live this, you know, in this type of family. And my mom would always tell me, hey, Caleb, you know what? I just got to warn you, you know, Christians, they hate us. They don't like people in our community. Christians never like people who are different from them. And I said, well, I don't believe that's true. And I didn't believe it until I was like nine years old. And I was marching this parade. Um, And at the end of the parade, there were all these Christians with signs, holding up these signs saying, God hates you. No room for you in the kingdom. Jesus doesn't love you. And they were spraying water and urine on everybody in the parade. And they said, this is what Jesus thinks about you. And I looked at my mom. I said, mom, why are they doing that? She said, well, Caleb, they're Christians. Christians hate people in our community. They don't like people that are different from them. I said, well, I definitely don't want to be one of those. And the next time I learned this lesson, I was a little bit older. But I got to tell you this first, okay? In my day, we didn't have Nintendo DS. We didn't have Wii. You know what we had? We had Commodore 64. Anybody represent out there? We had Atari, and we had original Nintendo, too, with Duck Hunt before Duck Dynasty was even anything. And so you might say, well, Caleb, you must have seen a lot in these parties. No, I would find an empty room with a TV and play my video games. That's what I did. That's the only thing I wanted to do. So we didn't have DS, so you had to pick up the entire game console like this and drag it with you. You know what I'm talking about? And you have the one remote controller that's dragging behind you like a leash, and you're pulling it with you. And there's this guy named Lewis who would go in and play video games with me. Lewis was this big, tall, African-American guy built like... Mike Tyson, Evander Holyfield. I mean, just, just think of the opposite of me in every single way, and that's what he looked like. And so he would sit down, and he would play video games, and, and we would have a good time together, and we went to the same doctor together. And so this one time I went to the doctor's office, and he was sitting in there, and he had these bruises all over his head. And I said, Lewis, what's going on? What's wrong? And he said, well, Caleb, I have AIDS, and I'm getting ready to die. And I said, you're kidding and a few months later, he, he was on death's doorstep, literally. My mom and I went to go visit him a few days before he died. And here's this guy when we walked in the room. He was like 100 pounds. I mean, used to be, you know, look like a professional boxer. Now he looked like a shell of the man that he was. Underneath nine blankets, shivering. But that wasn't the worst part. Here's the absolute worst part. On the other side were his family, the quote-unquote Christians, with their Bibles open, plastered up against the wall like they're waiting for a firing squad in that very moment. And he would ask for something to drink, and they, mom would be like, okay, here you go, and pour him a drink and give him over here. And I was like, oh, okay, I didn't, I didn't touch him. 
I went over there and gave him a hug and a kiss goodbye. He died a few days later. But when we were walking out of the hospital room, I said, Mom, why are they acting like that? And she said, well, Caleb, they're Christians. Christians hate people in our community. And Caleb, I told you, Christians really don't like people that are different. So here's my plan. When, you know, I got to high school, I looked a lot different than what I do now. I mean, you know, I had long hair and I was thinner. And since then, you know, the Lord giveth and the Lord taketh away. And so my plan when I got to high school, I didn't have a, a Christian worldview. My plan was to go ahead and to join a Bible study. And I was going to act like a ninja Christian. I was going to go in there and I was going to pretend to be a Christian, but I wasn't. And when they were, you know, least expecting it, I would strike with my talents. And so I grabbed this old revised standard dusty Bible off my dad's shelf that the Apostle Paul probably wrote in. It was so old. And I took it with me in the Bible study. And we were all circled up. And everybody was reading a verse out of 1 Corinthians 9. And so I'm in 1 Chronicles 9. And so all these people are reading these nice verses by the Apostle Paul. They get to me and I read, and then he will strike them down with a sword. And there will be blood and they said, Caleb, where are you? I said, I'm in First Chronicles. Well, that's in the Old Testament. I said, old one? Does that mean there's a new one? I mean, I really didn't know. But I kept on going and going and going. And, and here's what I learned the more that I studied. That, that the Jesus that's presented in these pages is not the guy that holds up signs on the street corners. It's not the Jesus over here, you know, plastered up against the wall because he doesn't want to touch anybody. We're talking about the Jesus that touched lepers, for goodness sakes. And, and I'm just like, wow, this Jesus is so much different than what my parents said or what I saw from other Christians. And before I knew it, I became a Christian. And, and I got baptized. And it was like a CIA baptism because that had to be a secret. I didn't want my parents to know. But I was so excited after I got baptized, I told them, and they grounded me. And a week later, I went to a youth conference and decided to go to Bible college. And I told my parents, and, you know, they said, okay, Caleb, we, you know, you're going to have to choose between us and God. And I chose God, and they disowned me for a while. And it was a very, very tough time, but I didn't care. And so I ended up going to the Mecca of Christianity, Ozark Christian College, which is where, you know, your pastor Tim went, except he went back in the 40s. And I went, uh, <laughs> did you like that? Did you like how I did that? Huh? You tell him I said that, too. So... I went later on, and uh, it was a great experience. I mean, here's one of the great things about going to a Bible college in southern Missouri, is that you have all of these different small churches that you can preach at. Like the very first church I preached at had five people in it. The youngest one was 60. They wanted me to start a youth group. <laughs> it was going to be great. We're going to have a youth group of 30-year-olds. It's going to be fantastic. You should have been there. And so the second church I preached at moved up in the world, went up to 25 people. Now... It was a phenomenal church. 25 people, 50 people in the town. We had half the town went to Christ. I mean, that, we were the largest church per capita in the world at that time. It was amazing. And so I would get there and I would preach and I would ask my mom to come with me. Come, 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 come. Finally, one time she came and heard me preach. And so she walked in and, you know, I'm, you know, preaching and she experienced our worship and our worship was awful. And you say, Caleb, don't say that. No, it was awful. We had a woman who would get up there and just bang on the piano. And I'm not kidding, she would bang because she'd never had a music lesson a day in her life. So she would just get up there and randomly hit keys as we were singing. And I'm sure it's beautiful to God, but something was lost in translation in this hemisphere right here. And so, you know, my mom came and, you know, she said, thanks for inviting me, but no thanks for the next time. And the next Sunday I got there, two of the elders were waiting for me. And they said, Caleb, we'd like to talk to you in the back room. And so we went to the back room. There were only two rooms. There's the worship room and the back room. And so 
we went to the back room and they said, Caleb, if you want to keep preaching here, don't ever bring somebody like that to church again. And I just looked at him, my jaw dropped, and I said, excuse you? We don't like those people, they said. We're not that kind of a church. If you want to bring people like that, go find another church. And I said, I don't like you right now. I quit. I don't want to be a part of this church anymore. And they said, well, no, you can't quit today. You got to preach. I said, you do not want me to preach right now. They said, no, you got to preach. And so I got up there and I preached. The big time I preached. And after I got done, I walked down the middle aisle, and I did not let the doors hit me on the way out. And I got in my car, and as I was driving away, I said, Lord, if you ever steward me with the opportunity to lead a church, here's what I want. I want the real church. I want a church filled with people who are having financial problems, people who can't hold a job, people that are having marriage problems and depression problems and have been labeled by their sexuality, people who are having issues with drugs and addictions and alcohol, people who are involved in gangs, people who are cutting people who get pregnant before they're supposed to, all these kind of people, because that is the church that Jesus Christ came for, lived for, died for, bled for, and is returning for. And here's the great thing, is that the church is really a beautiful mosaic of broken lives that God has united together to worship Him. That's what the church is really all about. And so, after I graduated, I went to California, and something amazing happened in 2004. I got married to this really beautiful, tall, Latina woman, and she got married to somebody who looks like a cross between Dr. Evil and Uncle Fester, and... <laughs> you know, I tell her all the time, what horrible sin did you commit that you were stuck with this? You know, I mean, I'm, I made out good on it, believe me, I'm not complaining at all. But, you know, she, on the other hand, must have lost a bet with God. And um, a few months after I was married, in February 2005, my, uh, my mom called. And she said, Caleb, Vera, who's my mom's partner, is sick. She's got cancer. She doesn't want treatment. You better hurry back and see her. And so I bought a plane ticket immediately. And I said, God, help me not to make the mistakes I made before. Because I got to tell you, when I first became a Christian, I made so many mistakes when I was trying to witness to my parents. Here's one of the first mistakes I made. I just opened up the Bible and I started reading scripture and I'm like, well, the Bible says this right here. Read it and it's what it says. But if they don't hold the Bible as authoritative, it doesn't mean anything to them, right? It's like me getting up and reading the works of John Grisham to you. You're like, oh, cool. See you later, bro. So I made that mistake. Here's another mistake that I made. I thought it was my job to straighten out their sexuality, no pun intended. I thought that was my job. And, and here's the deal. I learned real quick, that's not my job. So many of the times we take it upon ourselves, and we think that when a person comes to Christ, you know, they have to look just like us. They don't. Here's my job. Can I tell you my job? My job is to present the truthful, unaltered gospel, the word of God, and to love people. That's my job. That's your job. Our job is to present Jesus in a truthful way, to be honest with people. That's our job. But to love people at the same time. It's not my job to condemn people or judge people. You know? I'll leave that to God. That's not my job. And, and I made so many different mistakes. And so I said, okay, God, if you give me this opportunity, just open up a door. I'm not going to force it. So I went there for four days. And I'm waiting, 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 and God's not doing anything. And I'm like, okay, God, don't make me force this. And on the very last night I was there, I was sitting with Vera, 
Um, she was in and out of sleep. My mom had turned their dining room into a makeshift hospice hospital room. And Vera was laying there. She opened up her eyes. She looked at me and she said, Caleb, what do you think is on the other side? Opportunity presents itself, right? And I said, Vera, Jesus is on the other side. And if you give your life to Jesus right now, if you, if you give it to him, he'll take it. And it doesn't matter who you are, doesn't matter what you've done, doesn't matter where you've come from, it might matter if you root for the Dallas Cowboys, Vera, but other than that, I said it doesn't matter. God loves you. And he's willing to take you even at the last moment. You know what she said? She looked at me and she said, I don't want to have anything to do with it. I said, why? She said, because I think you and people who worship Jesus are weak. I think you use Jesus as a crutch. And I got my southern drawl preacher voice on, and I said, well, amen, hallelujah. You're close to salvation because I am weak. And that's part of becoming a Christian, right, where you admit your weakness. And by the way, he's not my crutch. He's my wheelbarrow, and I'm going for a ride. And he's not just my wheelbarrow. He's driving the car. I'm not even in the backseat. I'm in the trunk because I'm so weak. Let me tell you this about me, and maybe some of you can relate. I don't need a Satan in my life. I mess up my life enough on my own without Satan being there. I mean, I think people throw him under the bus all the time where it's like, no, he didn't do that. You just made a dumb mistake. And, and so I'm like, I can't live my life on my own. Jesus lives it for me. She said, I don't want to have any part of it. And unless something miraculous happens, she went to a Christless eternity. Now, I've had people say, well, you don't know that. Well, I'm sorry. I don't live in the land of what if. What if is a dangerous place. The only thing I know is that the only way to God is through the Lord Jesus Christ. There is no other way. The other thing that I know is that God loves people immensely more than anybody else does. That's what I know. And so my wife and I, we were at a place called Shepherd of the Hills in Los Angeles for 11 years. And then I moved to Texas to pastor a church. You say, Caleb, why did you move to Texas? I moved there so you wouldn't have to. And I lived there for three and a half years before returning back to pastor a church in the L.A. area. And so, while I was down there, my parents, separately, in and of themselves, of their own volition, moved down and, and lived within, like, you know, a five-mile radius of us. It was like, it was weird. There's a jinx in the matrix. Something wasn't making sense because that had never happened before. And, and you know, my parents said, hey, can we come to church with you? My church? Me? Yeah. And I'm like, well, you know that I preach, Yeah. You know that I believe, yeah. All right. Come check it out. And so they came. And they came. And they were there every Sunday. And the most amazing thing happened. My church treated them better than I did. It was so annoying. (laughs) And here's what happened. Two weeks before we left to move to California. In July 2013, my parents both gave their lives to the Lord. Two weeks before. Here's the incredible thing, is that my mom used to listen to Christian radio to make fun of preachers like Chuck Swindoll. Now when she goes to church, she's going to Chuck Swindoll's church <laughs> at Stonebriar. And I'm like, that, that, that should blow my mind. And people say, well, Caleb, do your parents still have, you know, those feelings? They're still attracted to people of, of the same gender. And I said, Probably. You know, they've lived that way all their life, or at least when they entered the community. Can't turn it off, probably. Or are they with somebody? No. 
they still have those feelings? Yes. Do they believe in Jesus? Yes. Do they believe everything that you believe? No. Are they saved? Yes. Do they go to church? Sometimes. Sometimes not. Are, they, are you sure they're saved? Yes. How does that all go together? I don't know. It's not my job to resolve the tension. Here's my job. To present the truth of Jesus Christ and to love people. That's my job. Okay? I don't have to put, to, I leave that up to God. He can take care of that. He takes care of that tension. But you and I have to learn to live in the tension. And here's why it's so important. Listen to me on this. Stay with me real quick. You see that cross over there? Jesus Christ died on the cross. He shed his blood to take your place. When Jesus Christ died on the cross, he took on himself every single false label that other people give you. He took those labels and he took it on himself and he bore the weight of your sin and of your mess and of your labels in that one moment. And when you believe in Jesus Christ, God no longer sees Jesus on that cross. He sees you. And now that you live your life as a follower of Jesus, God no longer sees you living your life. He sees his son living his life. So let's do the math here, theological math real quick. If Jesus Christ died so that the whole world would come to believe in him, if he died so that everybody would have an opportunity to come to him, how dare we ever treat somebody badly because they're different from us or because they look different, act different, dress different, any kind of different. When we do that, we are spitting on the cross of Christ. When we do that, we're saying, God, your blood is good enough for me and some of these other people, not for this person over here. This person is strange. And, and how dare we? What a low view of God and of the cross, and of Jesus' death. I mean, if that was God, that would make me angry that I allowed my son to go through all that, and yet my people who took advantage of my son's blood for the good are not willing to pay that forward. They must not think very much of my son. You've got to think about it, people. God loves messy people. God loves people with labels. And here's what that means. Both those statements together means that God loves you too. Let's pray. Lord, thank you for the opportunity to be here. Thank you for the opportunity to share your word. I just want to pray for people that believe in you right now, that they will step forward um, in, in their walk with Christ and with your son, Lord, and, and that they would be able to treat people fairly and with love and grace. Um, I just pray that you would help them live within that tension and embrace the tension of grace and truth. And that sometimes it may not always make sense, but we're supposed to live in that tension. I want to pray for those people in here who don't know who your son is. Maybe they feel lost. Maybe they feel far away from your son. Maybe they've never given their lives to the Lord. But I pray that this would be an opportunity when they could give their lives to the Lord, Father. I just praise you right now. I love you. And it's in your son's name I pray. Amen.